Hello, it's Nick Brown, Editor-in-Chief of Archives of Disease in Childhood. Welcome again to Atoms, this time for February's edition. As always, I'm joined by Rachel, Rachel Agbeko, our Senior Editor. How's your week been, Rachel? Uh, hi, Nick. It's been, it's been okay, it's been interesting. It's been a, been a January week with surprises um and um uh, it's kind of what i enjoy how about yourself yeah sim- similar i mean um as we were just saying that's why we still enjoy what we do and very varied week and no issues at all thank you um so this is another good issue um mm. and you picked up a, a a theme here in the four papers we're going to be looking at i think there is a theme here and i think it's about the margins overlooked areas for some reason or the other, uh, areas that shouldn't be overlooked, um, either uh, for any any reason, because they deserve our full attention. So we might forget about the issue if we don't pay attention. There hasn't been a, enough attention to make better progress in the first place, or there might be lifelong impacts if neglected. Any, any number of reasons, uh, really, uh, to uh, to examine our neglect uh, and the and the impact that our attention might have if we if we do pay attention. I think the first paper is a is a prime example of that. So, it's acute splenic sequestration in HBSS. Observations from the Jamaican British cohort by Graham Sargent and colleagues at the Sickle Cell Trust, University of West Indies in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, but before we talk about this paper per se, I do have to get something off my chest. Um, and, and that's to say that we should really be spending far more time, far more effort and resources on figuring out better treatments for sickle cell disease. Uh, and a large number of people will be very much helped by a concerted effort uh, to better understand and sort out this rather unpleasant disease. So there you go. If you want to use your brain in a fascinating area, then this is where to do it. Well, this is a beautiful paper. It's a it's a it's a gem in its both intent and execution, and it's scientifically so beautifully described. Um, starting with the prevalence, the features, the hematological characteristics, and outcome of this unfortunate group of children who, as a result of their uh, sickle cell, have splenic sequestration. So they followed just over 300 children with homozygous sickle cell disease, um, born um, in uh, an era between the early 70s and the early 80s in the main government maternity hospital in Kingston, Jamaica, who were screened positive for sickle cell. They were closely followed up initially every month and then at greater intervals. And they were also requested to present to the hospital if unwell at all. The last recorded event was in 1990, so the oldest children would be mid-late teenage and the youngest ones approaching 10, I guess. So physical examination with measurements of spleen size, symptoms and haematology parameters were available for approximately 300, um, so the vast majority, and about a third of them experienced a splenic sequestration during the course of that follow-up i love the uh, the way you introduce it so this is a this is a beautiful paper and then i heard uh 
1990. So, so what can we learn from this paper? So, so what's the relevance in current times? I suppose it's relevance uh, now, as as was the case uh, then, is to have a very low threshold for presentation if you have sickle cell disease. Of course, it's not just splenic sequestration; it's the crises. Um, the hypoxia, the neurological events, um, the other uh, middle-sized vascular uh, disease issues, and just a general alertness. And and this isn't doesn't just apply to families; it's to pediatricians who might meet these children, take their symptoms seriously. I guess. And it notes associated pathologies, outcomes, and challenging the accepted prevalence numbers, which was a big, uh, my understanding is that was a, uh, a moot point um, at the start of the study. So since, since this was conducted, there have been many changes in the approach to sickle cell anemia, and mortality uh, has reduced, I'm sure partly because of the greater attention. But this study still reminds us um, to be open-minded and careful with these children. The next paper we'll discuss is a cohort study um, and this one also starts with more than 20 years ago and also has relevance to this day. So Jennifer Brochen and colleagues uh, under, under the leadership of uh, Judith Ranking at Newcastle University in the UK they offer their findings in the paper Prevalence of Neural Tube Defects in England prior to the mandatory fortification of non-wholemeal wheat flour with folic acid, a population-based cohort study. It's a very long title, um, but also the title itself gives rise to several questions. Now, one question came to me, which said, why would one manipulate food in the first place, taking out the good stuff? then having to pack, put it back in again uh, in order to prevent serious birth defects. You know, that, that type of question, but that's maybe a topic for another day. This paper uh, examines the, the prevalence of neural tube defects, or anencephaly, spina bifida, and encephalocele. And that's in a time period that relied on women taking folic acid prior to conception um, as, a, as the intervention to reduce the risk of low folic associated neural tube defects. Now in England, note, about 9 in 10 women of childbearing age have been shown to have low red cell folate uh, levels and that's at risk of having babies with folate sensitivity neural tube defects. Other countries, uh, in order to reduce this risk, have introduced food-based fortification um, with varying success maybe, impact as given as between 15 and 60% reduction. Now, in 2021, the UK government introduced a mandatory folic acid fortification in non-homeal wheat flour. And as with anything, in order to evaluate an intervention, one requires a baseline assessment. One needs to look first. So is, is that what this paper gives us, Nick? I think so, yes. I mean, this is useful information even now, and it's going to be very very useful um, when we get comparator data a few years um, after the wholemeal, wholemeal flour uh, supplementation um, has 
really gets going. So the authors, they combine data collected in several birth registries, congenital anomaly registries and deaths to give us this, their baseline estimates. And it's worth saying that there was not a ready-made registry where the prevalence of birth defects for the whole of England was available. So they needed to draw on multiple sources. This has improved since the, most of the data was gathered um, because centralisation um, in the National Congenital Anomaly and Rare Diseases Registration Services. Anyway, in addition to providing the baseline prevalence, um, we're also given a rather worrying trend, um, and this was the standout feature for me, or the take-home message, is that in the period studied, there was also an increase in the prevalence of neural tube defects. Oh, it can't be discounted that this is because we're now paying more attention to better registration. We also need to be aware there was a downward trend over this period for red cell folate levels uh, in women of childbearing age. And that may well be a reflection of population dietary trends as much as anything else. We're going to stay with pterogenesis with the next paper. Uh, female paediatric patients with epilepsy who continue to receive valproate in the UK by first author Lily Lang and colleagues at Alderhay in Liverpool. Here again, I think it's about um, keeping uh, out an eye, even when it seems so evident that something that shouldn't be happening, uh, it's it's good to know that it actually isn't. So you, you need to look. Uh, uh, so why? Well, valproate carries considerable risk to the developing fetus. Uh, there's about 10% risk of congenital malformations, 30 to 40% risk of neurodevelopmental, neurodevelopmental disorders. Uh, and so for this reason, in the UK, there's very strict regulations about prescribing valproate to female patients of childbearing potential. Now, the authors here, they looked at uh, their own practice 700 patients uh, looked after by the journal paediatricians and neurologists treated for epilepsy uh, and what they found was that only 1% of females 12 years and above received valproate was prescribed that um, and every one of them had a good rationale uh, for the continuing prescription uh, so they hadn't slipped through the net it had been a conscious decision so what I took from that was that uh, is reassuring uh, uh, and sometimes you just need to actually look to see that all's well um, uh, and then move on. So the last paper for today is Zilatol for the prevention of acute otitis media episodes in children aged one to five years, a randomised controlled trial, so this time not a cohort study, by NAF Persodon colleagues in St Mike's Hospital in Toronto, Canada. I must be honest, uh, I did do a double take. Initially, I made the assumption that the paper was about analgesia, but actually it's about prevention. So, so Nick, what did you make of this paper? I liked it on several levels, but particularly um, this interesting notion that uh, it's possible to use, or there's potential anyway, for naturally occurring substances, in this case, um, the uh, naturally occurring sweetener, uh, xylitol, um, to actually separate bacteria that cause common childhood infections such as otitis media, 
uh, upper respiratory tract infections and caries from the nasopharyngeal cells. So reduced carriage, I guess, um, and thus, as a result of that, might be able to reduce the burden of these associated diseases. So what they did was recruit the children in the, I guess, highest risk group, the one, one to five year olds, um, were recruited in primary care sites to receive uh, two or five times per day, five um, milliliters of xylitol or sorbitol as a placebo. They were then followed up for six months and asked about signs and symptoms, diagnoses made by healthcare providers and potential side effects like abdominal pain. Unfortunately, only those with parents that could consent in English could participate. So what did they find? Well, the authors were a bit hampered by the COVID pandemic, um, which is a shame. Um, and that may have had an effect in terms of um, not being able to show a difference if there had been one. But in the end, they were able to um, admirably uh, del deliver the trial and um, and analyse it. And they found no effects on outcome, but the event rate was very low. So even a, a larger study might have um, been unable to show a difference. So, But the numbers, I think, is fair to say, were large enough to be able to conclude that it's time to look somewhere other than Xylitol, a different population, a different intervention. But I like the, this fresh outlook um, and found that refreshingly intriguing and thought-provoking. So, as always, there are many more papers, in fact, a, 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 an, is, an issue full of uh, interesting papers, um, which I'm quite certain that you will enjoy. Thank you so much for listening. Do check out the website for the rest of this month's issue. And thanks, as always, to Rachel for uh, joining me and um, chewing the cud over the most recent releases. Thank you, Rachel. That was a pleasure, Nick. It's goodbye from us. See you next time. Bye.